everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Anand Khan, who is the executive director of Restore Justice, which he co-founded while still incarcerated. While in prison, he inspired and helped to launch legislation that dealt with the felony murder rule SB 1437, which we've been tracking for the last year and a half or so. He has an amazing story, which I always enjoy hearing, but today we're actually going to focus on COVID. Uh, So welcome to the show, Anand. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So we've been tracking basically since uh, June. uh, Some of our interns created a COVID behind bars project and all of a sudden, we seem to be doing pretty well until about June, and then everything kind of fell off the rails. So um, early in the pandemic, places like Rikers and other places in other states had their own problems, but then it suddenly exploded at places like San Quentin. Uh, can you give us a sense for what went wrong? Yeah, so it was um, exploding in other uh, facilities in California, state facilities, obviously jails, um, that wasn't getting too much attention. At the time where right before the San Quentin outbreak happened um, in what we call, a lot of us call a quote-unquote botch transfer, um, there was a prison in in Southern California in the L.A., Los Angeles area called uh, um, CIM, which is the California Institution for Men. And there at that time, I remember um, looking at the, the daily reminder or daily chart and the, the cases had, had significantly skyrocketed in that prison. It was one of the largest outbreaks in, in, um, that I was aware of in California for sure, and, and not just in prison, but in general. Um, and I think it was mirroring some of the stuff that was happening in Rikers and Cook County, um, jail in, um, in Illinois, I believe. So at that time, there were 19 total deaths that were recorded in California state prison. And 16 of those 19 came from this one prison, CIM in California. And then next thing you know, they transferred 120 some odd people to San Quentin State Prison. And immediately upon arrival, the outbreak just erupted in San Quentin, uh, immediately. After doing, uh, actually, a lot of us knew that they were going to do transfers, and we tried to stop it, raise awareness, uh, reach out to the governor, legislators. I mean, we just did everything and everything we could in, inside of the correctional department, uh, the people that we know. And it was just um, 
uh, uh, you know, uh, no response that they got this under control. And I mean, we just knew that was a disaster. And then we find out that that either didn't test everybody properly. If they did test them, it was several weeks prior to the transfer. And once they did test them, uh, they mixed them with the regular population. So there was no quarantine or medical isolation. Um, it was just so foolishly done. And I'm sorry to say incompetently done or some argue intentionally done. Anyways, um, after that, just uh, the outbreak has been uh, was significant, very deadly in San Quentin and it spread across the state of um, California and other facilities eventually. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, that some people think intentionally done. I'm not so sure if it's intentional or incompetence, but uh, it seems kind of baffling that that they would be that dumb. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I can't, I can't, uh, I have no evidence to back up the argument of intention or incompetence, right? Uh, I can only infer. And, and honestly, a lot of evidence for me, at least, uh, you know, I've, I've spent 16 years inside of prison and I just, I just like, sadly, like my uh, inherently understand how the system works and, and why it does what it does. So a lot of, a lot of it is illogical. And some of that, uh, that that's illogical, the decisions that are made uh, can be or have been, in my experience, out of incompetence. But many times it is intentional under the, um, I guess, under the umbrella of that no matter what, that corrections make decisions and they make decisions not based on medical um, data, research, um, but on what they understand or define as safety for them. And which is, is that, that blanket statement of, hey, we're doing this for the safety of the institution or, you know, we have to uh, make these decisions the way we need to because we understand correction settings. Um, they just take hold of, you know, all decisions. So that decision was not carry, uh, done or carried out through research or through medical um, professionals. It was done through correctional staff. So, um, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist, right? I, I, I learned everything that I learned about COVID um, from the news and from doctors and from research that, I was, that was slowly being put out to us. And I, amongst a bunch of us, all already know that you can't test somebody and then put them back in a population with net positive cases. As we know that, we know that even when you transfer, if you move people, you put a bunch of people in a bus, you're not testing correctional staff. The correctional staff that handcuff you, the correctional staff that strip search you, the correctional staff that uh, are in this bus with you. And then when you get to the facility, uh, the staff that, that escorts you from one location to another who again strip search you. I mean, it's just a you know, so much attention goes to the incarcerated population, but not on the correctional staff who were bringing, uh, who are and were bringing COVID into these facilities in the first place. So sorry for the long-winded response. My, my point was like, it's, it's to me, it's, I, maybe I need to do a better job at providing evidence on, on incompetence or um, intentionality, but it's hard for me to, uh, just based on my 16 years of experience to, um, articulate that when inherently I know like in my mind exactly how that whole thing played out. No. And, and, and I appreciate that. Um, and I actually appreciate that, you know, you're not, you're not going to just jump out there and say, well, they intentionally did it because part of what's really interesting, like I saw the numbers a few weeks ago at like Mule Creek 
and it was like almost 800 uh, incarcerated people, but then it's like 300 to 400 staff people. So, you know, and, and then you hear these stories that, you know, the, the guards are refusing to wear the masks or they're refusing to give out masks and they want social distance. It, it, it seems like it's going against their own best interest. Well, they're not even stories. So again, when we talk about intentionality, right? And we have to, we can't, we can't isolate the conversation of prison and COVID and not talk about what is and what was happening um, on um, the federal level of, uh, and the, the leadership of this country, right? Like how masks were politicized, how, how Trumpism, we have to name that. And, and who works, right? Like who, the people who believe in the, the stuff that Trump was spewing and is still spewing, um, where do they work? We see it. They work in policing. In, they're in military. They're in the National Guard. They're they're in correction. They're correction officers, judges, and we saw the insurrection, right? We saw the t- the people that were there who believed the election was fake and who were anti-mask, anti-vaccine. Um, the same people are in charge of, of of prison and who work inside of prison. And there's multiple. It's not just stories of people of staff not wearing masks. It's in a it's in a report and it's in it's, it's judges. Uh, there's a um, uh, uh, judge Tiger who has been holding consistent hearings um, with with the attorneys who represent correction, uh, California corrections. And one of the reports is the Office of Inspector General General report. They went in there. They knew the, the administration knew that the Office of Inspector General that they're doing this report and they're into the, in this prison, and yet they still were not either either wearing their mask properly. Um, it was hanging below their mouth, and some refused to wear masks. And so when the question was asked, hey, to, to the to correction, to the administration, uh, administration that why weren't, um, why haven't you mandated masks, like forced staff to wear masks in prison? And that literally answer, this is in the report, says, be, quote unquote, because they're adults. So these aren't stories. This is, this is, this is reported by the Office of Inspector General, it has been um, um, brought up on, on legal, doc- not just legal documentation, but the legal hearings by judges. Hey, why haven't your staff been forced to wear masks? All right, there haven't been visits since March of 2020. So there hasn't been, the only contact has been uh, um, correctional staff, staff. And so it has been masks and, and, uh, and masks, mass, but correctional staff aren't the only uh, Yes, that's the reason how it's getting in, uh, but the reason it's, it's spreading is, is we have to remember that COVID, the reason we have a COVID in prison problem is because we have a mass incarceration problem. That, that's the, you know, when we talk about underlying conditions of COVID and pre-existing conditions, well, for, for correctional, for, for um, uh, prisons and jails, it's a mass incarceration in itself is the underlying and pre-existing condition. Yeah, and you know when I hear uh, you know accounts uh, like you know the uh, CDCR saying, well, they're adults; they can decide whether or not to wear a mask. Yeah, but they require them to wear uniforms, and they have all these other stringent requirements. But we won't force them to wear masks. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, whenever there needs to be a cell extraction, whenever there needs to be any type of show of force or use of an extreme force, you will immediately see a bunch of correctional staff with their face shields on, with their uh, protective gear on, with all sorts of, right, like, like, no question asked. It's in the training. They train with 
all this heavy equipment with face shields, regular shields, batons, pepper spray, gun power. They go to shooting ranges. There's a shooting range all um, around every prison. Uh, so, so my point is that it is it, it's very easy to make staff wear masks. That's all. Uh, that's all I can say. So, um, do you have the current numbers of COVID in uh, California prisons? Um, right now, that right now the number you mean total confirmed or, or active right now? Uh, total confirmed is fine. So I'm just looking at the chart um, according to corrections, uh, CDCR corrections, and there's over 45,000. There's 45,690 as of right now according to this chart, but active. Uh, right now, 3,120 people are sick with COVID as of right now in um, California uh, prison. So when you look at that 45,000, that's nearly 50% have have been have uh, been tested positive for COVID. I have to add that this is inconclusive because there's a lot of people who didn't, and we could talk about this here in a second because um, I don't want to get off of your question, but there's a lot of people who didn't, who refused to test um, and who didn't test and who had COVID because they were afraid of um, being sent to solitary confinement, having their privileges taken away just for being sick, um, uh, inadequate staff. Um, there's a lot of reasons why a lot of people did not test. But as of right now, there's 3,120 people. And there are, there are there's one prison, CMC. Uh, there's right now 754 cases. Another prison, 304 cases. Another prison, 248 cases. Another prison, 190 cases. And we think about that, right? 190, imagine you were in a grocery store, for example, and there's a, a large grocery store, and there's 190 people that have COVID right now and are lying on the floor, lying, on, lying in aisles or passing by in aisles um, just with COVID. And that's exactly what's happening right now in, in, in our prison system. Now, that's just 190. Imagine... 754. Right now, today, as we speak, there are 754. Um, and, and when we say uh, numbers, I want to make sure we translate numbers into human beings who are incarcerated. Because these are people who are sick with COVID right now and don't know if they're going to make it or not. Um, in December alone, um, there was a, a, a cases doubled right after Thanksgiving in prisons. This is according to the New York Times. Uh, cases doubled in the month of December and in prison of COVID. And it was a 30% increase in death just in the month of December alone. Um, I'm waiting for some more research on the so far, so far in January, but it's already looking like um, based on numbers, some of the numbers that we have here in California, that because of Christmas and New Year, that, that those numbers have actually increased even more. So there's already, I believe, been 50... Um, 51 or 52 deaths in California state prison in January alone. And where, where are we? January 22nd today, 21st. So in yeah. three weeks, there's been just over 50 deaths in California state prison. And we're a year into this pandemic almost. Well, pretty much we're a year into this pandemic. Yeah, it's crazy. And uh, you are actually heading where I wanted to go with this because, you know, it's one thing to talk about numbers, but Numbers don't put a human face on this. And uh, I was at the press conference outside of San Quentin back in July, and I heard some of the horror stories that uh, mm. 
was coming out at, at that point. I mean, these are really sick people. And in, in some cases, they're giving them like two Tylenol. Um, in one prison, I heard that uh, they put all the sick people in a gym. Uh, you know, so, I mean, this, you can imagine being as sick as you've ever been in your life, which I think is what one person described it as. And, and then being in a jail cell, not in a hospital, because you, you just don't get any treatment. Um, can you put a face on some of this? Uh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, all these numbers are faces to me, right? Like for me personally, um, again, like I grew up in prison. I was incarcerated at the age of 18 and did 16 years. And what that means is I've developed and, and um, strengthened bonds and relationships with human beings and mentors and people uh, and friendships. So the way that, you know, I, I and this is like the, the sad part is like most of society, they don't have, they don't know people like myself or the people that are currently incarcerated or many who are formerly incarcerated. So for me, like I know, I know people as a whole, what society does and many of the people who are in leadership positions who make decisions, whether they're governors or legislators or local uh, council members, what, what, what happens is that there's this idea of the crime, not just the idea that, that, essentially people are handcuffed their identities are handcuffed to their crime and when you look at someone's total life childhood the, the harm that was committed why they're in prison and then who they are today we have to realize we have to take that whole thing that whole picture in consideration in identifying who people truly are and and you can never um you know remove someone from a permanent damage that's been done but what we can do is make a much better assessment on the individual based on who they were. I mean, I, I spent time with people, you're talking about the faces. Like I, I spent time with people who have re revealed in, in the group settings and, and to find healing that the abuse that they, you know, and trigger warning here, the abuse that the, uh, children have suffered when they were children, I mean, eight years old, uh, being, being physically and sexually abused by a father at that, right? Um, they, I, I know stories of, of people who are incarcerated who ha were beaten by their foster parents at nine years old with closed fists. Um, I know stories of, of people who are little boys who were in closets and handcuffed or, or tied. These, these are the stories of who's incarcerated right now, the childhood. And, and what's crazy is like, I know who they are. I know what, you know, even the crime that was done and it's not an excuse. To, to give an excuse to what was done, but to understand why someone committed harm and then further who they are today. And then the further step for us as a society is to understand how we, how we continue to traumatize people who have already been traumatized through incarceration. And what that allows is when you handcuff people or people's identities to the harm that the only they've done and never let anyone learn more about you, whether it's your childhood or who you are today, it's easy to treat people the way we do in prisons today. It's easy to dehumanize people and not just dehumanize, but you utilize that dehumanization to further um, punish and, and essentially torture. Like we don't know, you know, the medical, I'm sorry, the um, isolation from society, no human contact, what that does to the rapid cognitive decline in people, what that does to the decay and deterioration of 
emotional, mental health for incarcerated people. And now imagine um, with the 24-7 police correctional surveillance and presence heavily, heavily uh, imminent over you, right? With the lack of help, with the lack of support, with the lack of proper medical care, with um, food that's not just nasty, but um, lacks nutrition for your, for your health. So how do you even nurse yourself back with, like you said, Advil or Tylenol and uh, 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 maybe a rotten apple or a, a small little tray with pieces of lettuce on it and soy meat that isn't cooked properly? Right, so all of those things, all of those things are interconnected on that people deserve this because of what they've done, not who they are. Yeah, so I... I, I hear you, and I think it's important for people to kind of hear this because a lot of people's attitude is basically, well, you know, if they can't do the time, they shouldn't have committed the crime. And I think that way oversimplifies anything that we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's um, I think, a very dangerous, uh, um, I guess, normalized phrase or quote. Because what people don't understand is like you just if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. That it just it just lacks a lot of lot of understanding. Um, one is quote unquote doing the time the way the way it is now uh, being punished, meaning severely punished and, and continued abuse of people who've been abused their entire life. Is that safe for society? Um, you know, we have you know I think a, a national recidivism rate. Of, of over of almost 70 percent and so if there is any company for example david if there was a company who um a car company and they had a 70 percent recall consistent recall i mean that business that that business would be shut down if there was like a meat company that that had a 70 percent recall on their meat that business would be immediately shut down because it's not working and it's dangerous for the consumption of society so similarly, when you look at recidivism, even people blame individuals for coming back to prison. But when you look at recidivism, how that is even framed, it's, most of it is related to uh, housing and employment, right? Society doesn't even let people re-enter or, or provide pathways. You can't even vote. You're not even, you're not even at the least, uh, uh, reintegrated into democracy. So when people say, oh, do the time, do the time, it's way more than that. It, it's the that does that time harming somebody deteriorating people is that safety it's not and i think that's such a we need to remove ourselves from that trope and, and really understand what provides all of us safety because as we know through covid if i'm not safe you're not safe and so similarly if people who are incarcerated we, we have to look at safety not not just removing somebody and hurting them but the person who's been harmed, what does safety look like? And the person who has done the harm, what does safety look like for them as well? We have to look at society that way because this, this in itself is the public health crisis. Yeah, and I think you raise a good point, you know, on the recidivism rate, because if you look at most people going to prison are not staying there for the rest of their lives. Most people are going to be released at some point, and yet... For some reason, we haven't figured out that we need to actually give people a way to uh, develop skills so that they don't have to go back. Um, you know, we, we, we just basically toss them out. 
Um, they don't have a job. They don't have housing sometimes. They don't have a support system. Uh, they don't have, uh, most of them don't have education. And, and yet somehow, you know, we expect them not to commit another crime. And yet we've almost set them up, most of them, for failure. Uh, I mean, exactly. That, that, that's the whole point in investing into resources that prevent harm, right? Like, I, al I always say, I share this for my example. By the time I was 17, I was a parentless, homeless, high school dropout with layers and layers of trauma and abuse, with abandonment, neglect, physical abuse, all of that. Um, again, 17, parentless, homeless, high school dropout. And those aren't, like, immediate um just because someone goes through that or i went through that doesn't mean that um there turns into a, a crime but i will say that it makes that decision much easier to survival becomes so different under those circumstances so what i am saying though is that under those conditions at the age of 18 i did commit a crime i did i did commit harm but that is when housing was there for me that is when the, I, I remember i didn't have food to eat literally um as a teenager uh, um, but that's when three poorly made meals were provided for me once the, you know, I was incarcerated. There was at least $80,000 now for me after committing a harm. There was housing, quote unquote, meaning a cell, a jail cell, after committing a harm, right? So that's, that's the point in, in police showed up after I committed a crime, after that. I couldn't go to, um, the police station and say, Hey, I'm homeless. How I don't have housing. I don't have uh, food. I don't, it, it wasn't, there was not, there wasn't anything there that would help me. And plus where I grew up, I'm not seeing, I, I don't see policing as helpful as some do. I see policing as, as dangerous. Actually. I, I see it the other way because of what I've visually seen in my community. Right. So when we look at safety, it, it's, we have a, a, a you know, the idea of safety it has been so co-opted or has been sold to us much differently than those who are impacted by these, these systemic um, policies and, and, and systemic uh, uh, administering of these policies. So, so my, a lot of my work is in, 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 in the system because I understand that there are children who are right now, just like me, who are black, brown, poor, are going through the exact same thing that's why the cycle continues we need to um and i will also say that uh that that the solutions are there all the solutions the data the research the um you know, all, all of it is there it, it, it's in front of us it, it's anecdotal it, it's um however you want to name it it's there it's actually just been a choice uh, of not of, of not utilizing that and keeping our our prisons the way we, uh, uh, the way our society polices, the way we have substandard education in our community, how prisons and, and schools are sadly synonymous sometimes. Uh, the school to prison pipeline, I can share with you my whole, I went through the entire pipeline. You know, I went to multiple high schools, continuation school, night school, summer school. I mean, it just, it just, and I could tell you how punitive it was for me, right? And so anyways, my point is, you know, substandard education, inadequate healthcare, um, recovery centers just aren't 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 the norm, aren't available, and that is crime prevention. That is what safety looks like in society. And then when someone does commit a harm, 
there's so much data research, um, anecdotal uh, evidence, I mean, all sorts of stuff that points towards this is when someone commits a harm, this is how, um, what, what restoration looks like. And that is what provides public safety. Um, our society just chooses not to accept that. Yeah, and I want to punctuate a, a point you made. You know, it costs now somewhere around $85,000 a year to incarcerate one person. And yet we're, we're spending barely $10,000 on each pupil in K through 12. And, you know, college is maybe a little bit more expensive than that, but uh, certainly not 85000 85,000 might be, you know, your elitist elite, uh, you know, Ivy League school. But, you know, most places you're not spending 85,000. We, we're, we're spending money on the wrong end of this. Yeah, I mean, I can have this conversation about the budget reallocation all day with you, man. And I think that that's, that's been uh, uh, people screaming and shouting this for a very, very long time. Decades, if not centuries. Right, uh, and this idea of when we talk about idea of equality, and we have to remember one thing that um, when we talk about a lot of people frame it as government funding. Well, it, it's not. It's not so much government funding as much as it is, it is taxpayer funding. We have to remember that this is our we elect. They work for us, or supposed to technically, um, and and our money comes from where where this money is going comes from our pockets, our our labor, um, and that's why we have a say so and should have a say-so in, in where our funding goes. And here we are yelling and screaming and telling everybody that that public safety, you know, it, it gets cloaked, not cloaked, I'm sorry, it gets um, co-opted or, or, or uh, labeled as, oh, the radical, people are radical, or they wanna, you know, um, you know, this is, we need more policing, we need more prisons because, uh, you know, they just want people to run around and just, you know, shoot and kill and rob you. And it, it's not, that's not true. People like myself in the advocacy community, people who are impacted, who have been through years and years of trauma, um, through personal abuse, physical abuse, whatever it may be, and systemic abuse through through neglect or over policing and over criminalizing, or just criminalizing children, um, and criminalizing people who are unhoused. It, it just this is um, this this is sad to say that that no one people uh, refuse to kind of you know. Uh, listen and, and adhere and acknowledge to because public safety is my number one concern. Like my number one concern is public safety, and, and the reallocation of funding to the proper places where I know through my personal life experience will provide safety. Um, it's just not not acknowledged um, to a to a um, a level that um, needs to be acknowledged in our society. So um, back to COVID, uh, what would be your recommendation for improving the situation for COVID behind bars? Well, like I said earlier, that the reason we have COVID in prison is because um, the underlying pre-existing condition is uh, mass incarceration. So the, the, the number one, um, we, we need to reduce the prison population and jail population significantly. Um, and it can happen. It can happen safely. It can happen. Um, you know, they say that pre-pandemic, according to uh, the CDCR, which is California Department of Corrections, according to their own numbers, they said that 70% 30, uh, 70% people um, have a place to go, have a home to go to, family members. 
And so that's another myth that most people getting out of prison are going to be in the streets, in the streets, right? Like you're just uh, roaming around the streets, which is uh, just factually incorrect. So 70% of people have a home to go to, have family members. Uh, 30%, according to the Department of Corrections, uh, within their first year, after the first year, end up houseless. And we can always point to uh, the reasons why, right? Housing, employment, uh, reintegration in the society is um, pushed back to, back against, um, sadly. So COVID, we have to reduce the prison population significantly, and there's a smart way to do it. Like we just talked about, there's 85, you know, 80,000, 85,000. Actually, the number goes from, from last time I checked, 80,000 a year up to 300,000 a year to incarcerate someone depending on their, their chronic illnesses, medical needs, mental health needs um, that the system, quote unquote, provides. So imagine taking that number, that, that amount of dollars, and reducing the uh, prison population significantly and utilizing and reallocating some of that, the, that taxpayer money to provide safe housing for someone that, that 30% that doesn't have housing and proper, you know, some form of financial aid because we understand that people are not only coming out in a pandemic, but an economic crisis. So there's ways to do that. There's ways to, you know, I'm not even saying give the whole 80, 80K to a person that's coming out. Just a, a portion of it will be significantly uh, helpful towards the individual once we do, you know, in terms of reducing the prison population. Then the other part is, you know, I'm, I understand that not everyone's going to be released from prison. I understand that. So the, the people that are left behind, we need to work on, um, keeping them safe, um, making sure that they have all the help that they need in keeping them safe, whether it's physically safe um, or uh, physically safe, mental health, emotional health, re uh, recon connection, reconnection with family, right? Not just, hey, let me do a, a, a quick call for 15 minutes once in the blue moon when they allow it, but more consistent family reunification is crucial, is crucial. Um, and and my, my, I wholeheartedly believe that it is that family reunification that is an essence of, um, of safety or, or love. Love is the essence of safety for me. And so we need to provide that as much as possible. Um, you know, provide any type of PPE that, that incarcerated people will need um, and proper medical, medical health. And that's been a challenge because these outbreaks that have happened and are currently happening in the prison system have significantly dropped already uh, a low um, number of, of uh, healthcare providers, not healthcare providers, sorry, um, staff, medical staff. So the more COVID cases go up, um, one, less medical staff and, and not enough medical staff to go around and continue to check everybody's vitals. And there's just so many people locked up, you know? So we need, we need that. We need proper, proper and caring medical help, proper PPE, proper nutrition, proper mental health services, um, um, you know, and it's sad to say that our, it's, it's not, not just sad, but factual to say for me that, you know, our prisons are, are built on punishment. The infrastructure of prison is punitive. It's not, they're not hospitals, therefore it's not hospitable, right? And, and so as we can try to put band-aids um, in, in, in some of the leaks and cuts that, that are within the system, you know, it's basically we're going to be putting band-aids on something that needs surgery. So those are, I guess, the band-aids I can offer solutions to to try to stop some of the cuts and some of the bleeding. But the truth is that there's there's a whole surgery that that needs to happen um, when it comes to um, 
what we need to do with our prison population and, and in relation to, to just COVID. And then, you know, Governor Newsom has been pushed a number of times to release more prisoners and he hasn't done it. Any ideas on that? I mean, um, it's, it's a, those are political decisions, in my opinion. Um, those aren't safety decisions. Those aren't decisions, again, um, based on facts and data, uh, research, uh, practical solutions. Uh, none of that is because, like I said, all the evidence is there. So I will see Newsom do his, uh, our governor do his um, press briefings throughout the entire year, and he will mention everything about COVID. He'll mention everything about Californians. But for some reason, if you're incarcerated, you're no longer part of that conversation. You're no longer um, part of being a Californian. Just because I was incarcerated doesn't mean that I'm not, I still wasn't a Californian or wasn't a member of society. Uh, um, you are, you, people don't understand this part. You are a member of society. You're just inside of a wall, which doesn't negate you from being part of society. And then on top of that, the people who take, not take care of you, that's not the correct word at, or accurate at all. Uh, people who are in charge of you um, work, you know, for the state of California. Um, and so our governor, when when he talks about COVID and when he when he puts data out there and research out there and uses those talking points from doctors and epidemiologists and and like I said, data and research. When there's data and research for prisons, one he won't even mention prisons um, because, in my opinion, it's politically risky for him. Um, and if a journalist or some, some, um, someone asks him about prisons, it's, it's a long-winded, roundabout answer that doesn't actually answer the question about reducing the prison population. The um, one time that I've heard him talk about the prison population when a journalist asked him for releases, it, it was such a Willie Horton, for those who know the Willie Horton example of utilizing a, a dangerous case. Hey, there's this person who did such and such and this type of crime and, and um, we're not going to release, you know, dangerous people and violent people um, out of out of prison. And and it just such a such a um, I'm sorry to say a, a, a right wing punitive talking point. You know, um, the Willie Horton talking point, the 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 anti um, you know black or uh, or um, you know just just uh, I don't want to get into too much of this, my criticism, but I think he does deserve a lot of criticism of the way he's mishandled not just COVID in California, particularly um, COVID in prisons, but, but further um, solidify, try to solidify that people aren't deserving of release, that people in prison aren't deserving of much more proper medical health care. And, and also he was saying that, no, everything's taken care of. I trust the head of correction that he's appointed. Um, that's his decision to appoint a head of the Department of Corrections in California. Um, and so every time that he was just taking their word, uh, according to him, that everything is fine, and it wasn't, and we all knew that. So it's been a significant failure, not just in the COVID response, but, but trying to solidify um, the dehumanization of incarcerated people, the, the tropes of they're dangerous, we can't let them out. That uh, He also said that people are going to, be homeless. I can't just release people and let them be homeless. Um, when there was a bunch of community organizations up and down California that have spoken to him, talked to him, told him that we have housing, we have funding, uh, uh, private funding to get hotels for people for quarantining. Like we have, we have everything set up. 
he just refused to do that because I believe, and we all, a lot of us believe that it was a, uh, a decision based on um, perhaps his political aspirations versus what's the right thing to do for people who are struggling and suffering systemically. Yeah, and that seems to be the case. Uh, you have medical health pro uh, professionals and the courts actually said that they need to reduce the prison population by half. Well, listen, we are just about out of time here, but I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Oh, I, I appreciate it. Um, this is something I get very passionate about, so I apologize for being long-winded and, and kind of going off on tangents um, on some of your questions. I recognize that. But it's it just that um, I, I, it just so frustrating. I think the, the underlying feeling for me is this feeling of, of helplessness um, when I know and have felt like the suffering that happens and the solutions that, that we all have um, are sound solutions. And so there's a, there's a level of helplessness and frustration. So I apologize for projecting that onto this uh, interview. But I just want to say overall thank you for providing this space and doing stories such as this one uh, to raise much more awareness on the human side of incarceration. Well, thank you. That was Anand Khan from uh, Restored Justice, uh, which he co-founded when he was still incarcerated. You've been listening to Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.